Hello, everyone. Welcome to my podcast. I am your host, Donna O. I wanted to create a podcast that would allow us to see the world through new and different perspectives by having sometimes difficult and challenging conversations by talking about race, gender, lifestyle, health, relationships, and spirituality. If you are ready to begin a journey that will push you to open your heart and push you to change your mind, then please join me on Moving Through and With Heart. And while you're here, enjoy the music written, composed, and performed by Ivan G. Hall. Hello everyone, I'm Donna O and my pronouns are she, her. This episode is a little bit long, but I think that's what happens when you sit down and have a conversation with a Zen Buddhist priest. I just could not stop thinking and asking more questions. <laughs> On this episode, I am joined by Heather Schoen Iruso, a longtime friend and Zen Buddhist priest. Heather joined monastic life in 2008 at the Tassajara Zen Buddhist Center and became an ordained Zen Buddhist priest in 2015. We start the conversation discussing what prompted Heather in her life to leave Catholicism and become a practicing Buddhist. And then we discuss Buddhist practices, meditation, the Four Noble Truths, and what we can do to begin to alleviate suffering. And believe it or not, we even discuss social justice. Did you know that our persistent thoughts can actually make us sick and is a cause of so much stress and angst in our lives? I hope that this conversation illuminates for you how important it is for you to be patient with yourself, stop perfection, and inspires you to begin to let go of negative thoughts and beliefs and begin maybe a little bit of meditation. All right, so I, I thought that we would start off if you could just tell us who you are and share a little bit about you so everybody knows. Okay. My name is Heather Moore Yeruso, and I am currently the program director at San Francisco Zen Center. And I am an ordained Zen priest, and I recently left monastic life where I lived for seven years at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, which is a um, temple that is under the auspices of San Francisco Zen Center. And now I currently live in San Francisco Zen Center's urban temple in the Hayes Valley neighborhood in San Francisco. So I want to say thank you so much, Heather, for willing to be on the podcast. And it's so incredible that I've known you for, I was trying to calculate it. It's something like 40 years, I think, at this point, right? Like a really long time um, going to high school together. And then we have not even spoken to each other since we graduated from high school. Yeah. So it's right. kind of surreal to finally me and to hook back up with each other after 40 years and to honestly for me it kind of feels like we never missed that 40 years right it's like it's pretty amazing how that is i always think feel like you know certain people come together for a reason 
And so it just makes it so natural. And even if you part, you can come back because there's just like, there's a silver lining that exists within each one of us that connects us to each other. Yeah, I feel the same way, Donna. It's, um, I, th I think also partly because I feel like a transplant in Northern California. And so uh, having that deep New York connection, Mount Vernon, New York connection. Yeah. And our high school years together. It's, uh, yeah, that, that's a certain time in our lives as adolescents and teenagers, such a developmental, a curious, uh, exploratory time for, for many of us. And, you know, we, we had the good fortune of being in a high school with uh, people from all around the world. So it's so interesting to me because you, and I did too, we both grew up Roman Catholic. Oh, I'm I not, that. yep, I grew up Roman Catholic. I'm not a, a practicing Catholic either, but you from went from a Roman Catholic to becoming a Buddhist priest. Tell me about that. How did that happen? A lot of suffering in my childhood and my teenage years, but I guess I never felt that Catholicism alleviated my suffering you know, the suffering in the body, uh, strong, very strong, heavy emotions, uh, anger, rage, grief, shame, anxiety, and then also lots of mental formations, lots of stories about who I was or who I wasn't. So for me, I never, I never found praying to Catholic God, the Ten Commandments, all the all the tenets of, of Catholicism never alleviated my suffering. And in fact, I didn't realize that there was a way out of the suffering. For me, Catholicism taught me that suffering was, the, was our cross to bear, right? And everybody has this cross and you just, you had an original sin, so you were born into the sin. And really it wasn't until you died that that sin would go away. If you got past St. Peter and the pearly gates. So for me, the original sin never really sat with me. I, I remember just never being satisfied with the nuns and priests responses when I would ask about original sin, because it does say, you know, Jesus was the, the son of God and he washes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. So if he washed away the sins of the world, he died for our sins. I don't understand how come I'm still born with original sin. So that was a question that pervaded my eight years at St. Ursula School. Uh, so, and, and I, yeah, I just never found any relief from these, uh, this quagmire of, of heavy emotions through Catholicism. I also felt in my particular Catholic school that the adults never seemed to trust us. My sense was the adults always thought children were lying. And I remember really having strong reactions to that I was perceived as a liar. And my mother and father weren't that way. My mother and father didn't have that view of me. So that was really helpful. So I, I felt like in that school system, children are liars, children can't be trusted and they have to be obedient. And that's the way I know that you're um, a good person is if you're following all the rules. And 
that was really difficult for me. <laughs> yeah, I would say that I remember, um, so, you know, you had to do all the seven sacraments and go to religious instructions. So I remember, mm-hmm. I think it was for my confirmation, I went to classes and I asked a nun, I said, so let me get this straight, you know, talking about sin. If there wasn't, let's say we had a nurse she gave her entire life every single day taking care of sick people. She was always honest, always kind, never did anything wrong. But if she didn't go to church on Sunday, she would go to hell. And yeah. she said yes. And I was like, I just, I just struggle with that. Like that one thing just bothered me. I'm like, well, how is, you know, I started questioning at a very young age, how is God? kind and loving if you know we if we're going to judge people this harshly like you know and I spend so much time trying to be good and perfect and there's no, you just there's no human that can be that right we are trained to be judgmental from not only society but from the institutions that surround us but talking about sin with Heather made me realize that we are taught even at church that we should judge ostracize and single out each other We are taught not to accept and create a space of inclusion and acceptance. If we are taught this through religion, then what hope is there for society and humanity? If we believe this, then no wonder we cannot move through the world with open hearts. So what was your journey like moving from Catholicism to Buddhism? When did that happen and how did that happen for you? I don't know about you, but I never heard about Buddhism um, at all when I was in my teenage years. I did, however, when I got to the University of Connecticut, I did learn about uh, Mohandas Gandhi and his uh, quest for the independence from, from colonial rule of Britain. And I somehow, I'm not sure exactly what, uh, how I found, how I learned about Mahatma Gandhi, just learned about his techniques of, or his philosophy of um, ahimsa, which is nonviolence and thought, word, and deed. It's a Sanskrit word. Of course, he, his philosophy and practice of ahimsa informed um, his quest for independence from, um, from, uh, from Great Britain and also was uh, a major influence on, on Martin Luther King's civil, civil rights movement. King's um, philosophy on nonviolence in the science. I don't don't think I knew that. I don't think I knew that. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't actually at the time, I didn't know that either when I was in college. And so that was the first stirring for me. I remember reading about Mohandas Gandhi's life and being very inspired. And there was some physical aspect of that in my body, just feeling like uh, internal tingling vibrations around learning about his own um, practice. And I didn't really continue studying Hinduism or anything like that after I left college. I um, meandered around for a while. Uh, and it wasn't until I was living in rural Florida, I was a newspaper reporter working for. Um, the Tampa Tribune, and I was having a lot of difficulty sleeping for some reason. And I remembered my mother and my father when I was a adolescent, they tried transcendental meditation. 
And I knew that it involved a mantra. And it just so happened in rural Florida, there was a transcendental meditation society or community. And so TM is what, what how it was abbreviated, TM, practicing TM. So I sought out this community, which was literally just 45 minutes north of me in rural Florida. And I got a mantra and I started practicing transcendental meditation. So that's the practice of, of following the mantra. And you get it. the mantra in that tradition was a sound, a primordial sound, right? And you got that mantra and you would, you would practice it. You would say it to yourself over and over silently. And if your mind wandered with thoughts, you just come back to that mantra and you would keep your eyes closed. So that was, I guess, a reintroduction to some you know, spiritual life. I eventually moved in to that community uh, for several months before I moved away from Florida. And again, just feeling like being in a spiritual community. We were living on a lake. It was quite uh, inspiring and beautiful in nature again. And I was working still as a newspaper reporter in rural Florida. And I had this spiritual opening, uh, or we would say maybe a somatic opening. And I was practicing a lot of yoga in the mornings and sitting by this beautiful, my, my little room looked out on this beautiful lake and I was practicing yoga. And then I was sitting on, um, I was doing meditation and there was these birds, it's like 6 a.m. or so. And there was these birds singing like they do. And then all of a sudden I felt these birds in my heart. My heart was just radiant warmth and bright, the sensation of brightness. And those birds were no longer external. The song was emanating from my heart. And it was just one of the most wow. blissful experiences. And as I don't know how to describe it, but as I started to come back to myself, if you will, it was just, I could feel still the radiation of the warmth and brightness of that bird song in my heart. In Buddhism, you know, we'll say, if uh, we talk about non-dualism or non-dual awareness, where the, the discriminating mind, the thinking mind, the chattering mind, that's always uh, coming up with good ideas and stories about life and about other people and about yourself. When that mind settles, we get we uh, often can feel more enlivened. And I think that that experience with the birds in my heart was just this settling of that mind. So there was less of a barrier between what was happening outside mm -hmm. and what was happening inside was this bird song in my heart. And then my mind started to reflect on it. And that's when the bird song started to dissipate. No. So it's like you were connected to all there is, like Native peoples would say, you know, we are all connected, we're connected to a nature, we're all in this vibration world together connected vibrationally. So it sounds to me like you just kind of expanded your awareness and your vibration to really be part of everything around you. Yes, I, I would say that, you know, there's uh, causes and conditions, you know, I was living next to this beautiful lake very quiet. I've been practicing yoga by myself as well as with others, living in the spiritual community, 
doing meditation. And so I think there was like the perfect storm, if you will. Of, right. Of being able to experience that. I would say that that is always present, right? The bird song is always in our heart. Right. We just aren't always able to experience it because of many things, right? Our mind is easily distractible. We're, we are, we're occupied by the 10,000 things that arise each day. Our society is not really geared towards spirituality. Our society is geared toward and steeped in materialism and capitalism and productivity. So in those moments, all that was all that wasn't present for me. And then when I moved away from that spiritual community and went to Louisiana to pursue a graduate degree, I started, I kept up with my yoga practice and with my transcendental meditation practice. I found yoga to be very energizing and enlivening. And the word yoga means to yoke. So you're yoking the mind with the body. So those, so the physical postures were so that you can prepare the body to stay in long periods of meditation. So how many hours do you meditate for? Like, what's the longest? Because I mean, I could do like an hour, hour and a half even, but how many hours, like Buddhist priests, don't they used to sit for really long periods of time? In the monastery, Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, six months out of the year, it's cloistered. That means that there's just the Zen students and the Zen teachers. And unless there's some sort of medical emergency, we don't really leave the valley. It's part of being, being contained. And there's three months, uh, and a three months from middle of September till the middle of December, and then January, the beginning of April. So during those, what we call practice periods, we would meditate five, six hours a day. Wow. Straight, and no break, just sit. No, no, that's no. So we would meditate in the morning from 4.20 a.m. for an hour to 5.20. Okay. And then there was a 10 minute walking meditation. So you could walk in the, in the meditation hall or leave to use the bathroom and then come back. And then we'd sit again for um, a 40 minute period of meditation. And then we would, uh, then we'd have service. Uh, so we'd, we'd have service for, it was a very long service, like about 40 minutes. And then we'd have breaks. So, so we did most of the meditation in the morning. And then we ended the day with two periods of meditation in the evening. So, and then- uh, So I always thought that when they said, when they meant sit, that it was mm -hmm. like hours and hours at a time so it's like, how can you, the body sit, you know, especially I always imagine someone sitting cross-legged on the floor on a cushion and sitting there for many, many hours at a time, you know, the body gets stiff, it gets stuck, even with right. the, the yoga, you know what I mean? Yeah. So because we sat in the morning, had a walking meditation and then service, so you're not sitting cross-legged anymore, but you're still sitting on a cushion. Uh, on the floor and then we'd have a break we'd have study and then we'd sit again for two periods usually before lunch happened mm -hmm. then we would work for three hours in the afternoon and then come back in for service and dinner around six o'clock and then we'd sit 
um, 7.30 to 9 o'clock in the evening. We, the routine there during those cloistered practice periods was that we had a intensive, what people would say a retreat for five, seven or nine days each month. So that was when the meditation periods intensified in the sense that we had more of them. So during those five, seven or nine days, we would meditate the same schedule. We'd be in the, in the meditation hall at 4.20 a.m. And then we would end the day again at 9 p.m. However, we would sit for almost all of the morning, all the way up to lunch. And then there's extra two or three periods in the afternoon. So you're sitting upwards of, you're sitting around 13 hours a day. And then you could not consistently sit. it's stopping for a second in between like right nobody right, was sitting right, right. 13 hours straight right that's what i mean yeah but the morning pretty much went from 4 20 a.m all day. the way all the way to noon so you there were breaks in this in this tradition of buddhism there were, we usually sit for 40 minutes have a 10 minute walking meditation and then sit again for another 40 minutes Got it. That's usually how this tradition sits. However, sit however long you're able to. So I think to me, it's more like other people have said, it's more about consistency, sitting every day, meditating every day, doing some practice every day. Right. Rather than being a weekend meditation warrior. <laughs> right, right, right. So you're getting into thing. Right. Got right. it. So it's, a, it's, a, it's about building that muscle that habit, not only the not only the physical habit of taking right. the meditation posture whether it's on a cushion whether it's sitting in a chair right however you meditate whether it's walking and then also the mental posture of settling and cultivating the mental faculty of attention so so for me the consistency is more important than the length and the consistency of course helps you sit longer if you can sit longer and you know the monastery is a rarefied environment you know not not most people in the world do not go to monasteries and uh and I think being at the monastery you're there because you want to engage in intensive meditation and right. be part of a spiritual community yeah I actually have been meditating since I was a kid mm -hmm. I just I don't know. I remember, I think I stumbled across a book or something that talked about it. I used to, I started out medicating with a white candle staring at the flame mm -hmm. meditation. And then I meditate with crystals and I was to buy water and just, it's just evolved. So I, I've been meditating. I always tell people I've been meditating almost my whole life. I was a weird child. And <laughs> one, you know, so many people say, I can't meditate. I can't, they can't meditate. They can't be still. And, I, and what I've always, because I used to also teach meditation. And what I always used to always share with everyone is it is a practice. So it's something you learn how to do by consistently doing it every single day, you get better. And if you, you don't start out thinking you're going to sit and meditate for an hour. So you start with 10 minutes, if that's it, 10 minutes of silence of being quiet, be still. And eventually you want more. It starts to grow from there and gets longer and longer with time because you're consistently doing it over and over. And if you can do it consistently around the same time every day, that's even better because then the body gets 
um, conditioned to look for that time of quiet and it can become still. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but I, even though I'm consistent, I've always been afraid of a sit because I'm just going, I don't know if I can do five and 10 hour a whole day. So now you explained it to me. I might be up for it one day now that I know <laughs> that you're moving in between, but I was like, I don't know if I could do that. Even though I've, I've sat for long periods of time meditation before I don't do that every day. I don't, I can't do that every day, but yeah. Yeah, the my the first day long meditation. Yeah, we call it day long sit, or a one day sit is how we refer to it. My first one day sit was at the Austin Zen Center back probably in two thousand six, or no, actually I think it was before that. When I'm talking about, I think it was two thousand one, two thousand one. And like yourself, I, there was a lot of anxiety and I, I was not meditating like you were every day. I mean, I was really new to the practice of Zen. I had just started to come to the, to the Austin Zen Center a couple of times a week. And I really appreciated the people who were part of the community. And then there was this one day sit and it was from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on a Saturday. And I remember driving to the center, just feeling all this fluttering anxiety, like I wasn't going to be able to do it. And how could I, yes, same questions like, oh, I won't be able to move. I won't be in control. What's going to happen? And I just kept going. And I, I, I sat the whole day and experienced at the very end of the practice, I don't know what time it was, but in the practice, we have somebody who strikes the bell to end meditation and to start. And this person who I barely knew, I think I had just met him a few, a few times I was coming to the Zen Center, so I didn't really know him at all. And he was the ringer of the bell. And of course, I was in physical pain and there was all these stories and I'm looking at the wall and just getting tired and not wanting to be there anymore. A lot of drama is what I would say was arising in, in, in the mind. And then I, my, the mind was just, my mind was like, oh, this guy is not ringing on purpose. He's doing this to you on purpose. He doesn't like you. He's not ringing the bell. So I realized, so finally he, and I started crying. I was just crying and he struck the bell and I pretty much just jumped out of my, jumped off my cushion and got to my car as quickly as possible. And I sat in my car and I thought, wow, what just happened? It was just me sitting across from the wall, staring at the wall, and all of this drama was arising, and I was crying, and I felt persecuted by a stranger and just knew he was doing some purpose, and then I thought, wow, this is really powerful. I need to so do When you say that. drama, you mean your thoughts and emotions, right? The, and that, the, I call it uh, head trash, Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like all these thoughts of what's wrong and things are crappy or yeah. coming up right. for you. Yes. So and still there was this knowing, this intuition that I need to keep coming back. Because when I saw that there was nothing happening, because and that's the that's the purpose in a way of looking at the wall with the diffuse gaze. So it settles the central nervous system and helps to um, decrease the stimuli, visual stimuli, especially. And I got to experience this mind that was just, to use your expression, filled with trash. 
and the arising physical sensations as well. Now, at the time, there wasn't any space between arising thoughts and physical sensations. They were entwined. And so I wasn't able to really pick it apart at the time. But just sitting in my car with the tears and just like, what happened, Heather? Nothing was really going on. You were sitting, staring at a white wall and all this stuff arose. So the value of sitting in that way, looking at the wall is it illuminates the mind. It's very hard to pay attention to the mind when we're always moving, right? We're always distracted. We call it monkey mind. Your mind is jumping from one thought to another thought, one concept to another concept. It's going to the past. It's dredging up past hurtful memories or maybe past joyful memories. And it's jumping into the future all the while you're brushing your teeth, right? Or you're sitting in your chair at work or you're having a conversation with somebody. And to use your word from earlier, you get triggered. Um, so sitting still, stilling the body helps us to experience the mind, right? So we get to watch the mind. We get to build that, the muscle of attention. Everybody has the mental faculty of attention. So we're able to start to direct the attention. Mind, the mind is easy, easily distracted. And there's so many distractions these days in our society. We just don't notice what the mind is doing. So sitting there in that first one day sit, I got a real taste and it was kind of scary, <laughs> anxiety producing and lots of head trash, as you said. And there was some deeper knowing, some deeper knowing that I had. A, and I had for those years before been doing some yoga, learning more about Hinduism, reading more spiritual books. So getting to the Austin Zen Center was its own journey. So I wanted to talk for a second because uh, about liberation and freedom because I understand that Buddhism helps us accept suffering and can bring us to a place of liberation and freedom. What is that and how can we obtain that? I'm assuming that was some of what you found, right? Was this liberation and freedom from all of that head trash. So how does it do that? What is liberation freedom, first of all? What propelled me to investigate Buddhism was I was at the tail end of a bitter relationship, which I actually call a reaction ship because it was more that we were reacting to each other rather than really relating to each other. And I had was seeing this psychologist and I, I've been to lots of therapy and she was a very nice woman. And I also found her to be ineffectual. And it was a clear question that arose, which was how come after decades of therapy, I mean, I wasn't in therapy every day for decades. How come after all this therapy and understanding intellectually the psychodynamics of my childhood did not alleviate physical suffering, right? The, the issues and the tissues, as a yoga teacher once said, all the physical sensations of emotions, right? The, the contraction in my gut, the way my jaw was held, the emotions of, of shame and anxiety and grief and rage and anger, all these really thick emotions, they were not being alleviated. So similar experience with Catholicism. I didn't find any relief from suffering in Catholicism. 
dogma, nor did I find relief from the suffering through traditional talk therapy. It was helpful to talk with people, to put things together intellectually, and still there was not like healthy behavioral changes. So I, the relationships I were in were reflecting back to me. This is why they were powerful. Well, I kept thinking, well, what is, what's, what's going on here that I'm still vibrating at a certain level where I'm attracting um, partners into my life who I could see what their dysfunctions were or my new, my new phrase are their conditioned tendencies. And I like that phrase. <laughs> me too. It's not, it's not pathologizing, right? How do we adapt as children to survive? And then how do those adaptations hold us back when we're adults? So that lead, led me to this question of how come I understand all this intellectually, pouring over the details of my childhood, and yet there's not a true alleviation of my suffering. So when it comes to liberation and suffering, I didn't find any relief from the suffering, like I said, through Catholicism or through therapy. And I didn't even realize until I started practicing Zen Buddhism that there was a way out of suffering. I just thought suffering was what we're supposed to do and I'm never gonna be free of it. So the liberation and freedom part, let me get this right, is the liberation and freedom from all of the self-talk, the mental trash, the emotions connected to that, that make us not feel so great, not make us want to get up in the morning or connect to other people or have healthy relationships or just simply being healthy human beings, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. So the Buddha's teaching, I find to be... Um, probably one of the, the teachings that most people have heard of is the Four Noble Truths, right? So there is suffering. So there's an acknowledgement that suffering exists in this world. And that's the suffering of just regular, like physical pain. Like I have, you know, um, I broke my finger or um, I have some sort of sickness or just so there's like a physical pain, right? So that's that's one way that we suffer, if you will, is experiencing physical pain or emotional pain. But this, so there is this inherent suffering in life, and it's inevitable. There's there's just suffering. That's it's, it's inevitable that we're, that there's going to be suffering because we're human beings in this life. The second noble truth is there's causes and conditions. So there's origins to suffering, right? What causes suffering to arise. The third noble truth is suffering can cease. This is something that I never knew. <laughs> suffering can cease. Now, until we actually understand suffering, there can be no cessation to it because we, we are not acknowledging that suffering exists. Some people don't know that the head trash, the physical uh, emotions that we feel uh, all this negative self-talk actually is suffering and that we don't have to, uh, if you will, put up with it. So first noble truth, acknowledgement that there is suffering. Second noble truth, there's causes and conditions or origins that lead to our suffering. The third noble truth is that there's cessation of suffering. Suffering can end. 
fourth noble truth is there's a path that leads us to the cessation of suffering. And that path is the eightfold path. So this framework of the Buddhist teaching, I found to be very uh, profound and transformative. Now, when I left for the monastery in June, 2008, I had not read very many books on Buddhism. I had only really read two. Suzuki Roshi's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which I didn't understand, but again, there was this uh, sense, this intuition that, that I needed to follow this path. The second book that I read was called Everyday Zen by Charlotte Joko Beck. So those are the only two books that I read. I just went to the monastery because I wanted to be elite. I wanted to feel some freedom from from all the suffering, both psychological suffering and the physical, emotional aspects. Yeah, I was going to say that there's so much suffering right now. Like we are just inundated with it. I feel like it's gone up. I know there's been a lot of suffering in the world, so it's not like we haven't had suffering, but I feel like it's just increased like a thousand times in everywhere you look now. We're just inundated with suffering. So- how can someone who let's say let's say is there anything that someone right now today can do to like alleviate that like you know I want to be alleviated of suffering like I don't want to experience that like how can you just like turn that off you know I can't imagine five ten minutes of meditation is going to help stop the thoughts you know what I mean like what does that mean to unpack that and begin to turn that off so that we don't experience what's going on in the world right now or is that too big of a question? <laughs> I mean, the big questions are the ones that I think we really all need to be asking these days. Yeah. Um, so the there's always suffering. Just there's suffering at the time of the Buddha. There was suffering at the time before the Buddha. And, and perhaps partly what we're experiencing is, of course, as a, as a global community, that now has lots of technology, we're able to we get a deluge, right? There's a daily deluge of suffering, right? The violence around the countries that we live in, around the world. Um, this is obviously we receive violence against uh, people of color, violence against women. Um, so the, the, the big violence, right, that, that's been happening, uh, especially in the United States with um, white-bodied police officers murdering people who are not white-bodied, people who are uh, people of color. And it's all, of course, very distressing that we find ourselves in this situation i mean distressing feels to me like a very like a lame word i mean it's it's more than distressing it's a in my opinion it's a yeah it's a crisis of it's overwhelming i mean it's like it's overwhelming. completely overwhelming yeah it's overwhelming and it is like the divisions of our society based on material wealth based on this invention we call race, which just happens to be the color of your skin, which has no inherent value to it. Um, patriarchy, 
the cisgendered white male patriarchy that has dominated many countries and capitalism, uh, ageism, ableism, all these isms that we cut, we uh, put people into these boxes and, and now as people are coming out of our boxes, right? We're, we're, we're rebelling against all of these systems that have oppressed millions of people. If people weren't oppressed, then there would not be all of these, um, all of these protests, all of this violence. They're just that's, I think it's like the way I bring it down to is what's going on for me personally has a lot to do with what goes on in our global community. Because until there's uh, liberation in our body minds in each person, there can be no collective liberation. How I, how I relate to myself or how I react to myself is how I react to other people. So if there's schisms in my personal culture of Heather, if there's schisms here, then I'm going to just, if you will, externalize or vomit all my schisms uh, toward everybody else. So how do you manage that? Because you know, so many people walking around with their schisms that think that they don't have schisms. Right. I mean, we're dealing with them constantly, but you know, I understand liberation is gotta be about self, right? It's like, we have to decide that we want to be different in the world. We want to, we have to decide that we want to feel different in the world. Mm -hmm. But when you're inundated with so much, wherever you look, whether it's social media or just going to the supermarket, quite honestly, like, right. how do you in that moment, or maybe you can't in the moment, maybe it's a reflection thing. I don't know. Deal with that and stay in a heart-centered place because it's really about moving through the heart. How do we continue to do that day in, day out and stay in the heart and unpack all of those schisms and everything so that we can do that and not be affected by all of those people? Well, I think first what we're seeing is a global recognition, acknowledgement of people suffering people who've been marginalized for centuries where their suffering is now being, being made more visible. And I think this does have partly to do with technology. We're able to see, you know, we, got, we were able to witness, we were able to bear witness to George Floyd's murder, right? We were able to bear witness to Eric Gardner being choked to death on Staten Island, right? We're able to bear witness to people suffering. Not only are the victims of the violence suffering, the perpetrators of the violence are also suffering. As one phrase I've heard is, hurt people hurt people. Right. So people who are hurting hurt people. We parents don't think who, about that. Yeah, we don't think yeah, about parents, that. Yeah. Parents who are hurting hurt their children. Not all of them, of course. Some, some parents are in a lot of suffering and they don't externalize that in physical or uh, physical abuse or neglect. There's some dysfunctions, which is true for all of us. So to a greater or lesser extent, right? We see, you now we see parents who, some, who are killing their children. I mean, there's, maybe that's always been there, but there's a lot of visibility around violence, right? Around, we get to see, as you're saying, all of this suffering, right? And 
I often thought, like when I started reading about Mohandas Gandhi, and I'm sure he harmed people in his life as well. Nobody has not harmed people. Um, that the United States really hasn't had, in my experience, a spiritual leader as the president, right? There may be people who are religious and they're vocal about being religious. And um, I think I think that's, that uh, President Biden is only the second Catholic to be the president, the first one being John F. Kennedy. So, so religion is, in some ways, you know, for me, it's held up as a way to put other people down, right? My religion is better than your religion. I'm holier than you. So there's a lot of divisions, right? Again, all these schisms that we have here. So I went to the monastery to heal internal Heather schisms, to figure out what, or to be with. You know, I don't think it's about stopping. We can't stop the head trash, right? One thing I want to be clear about is the mind is a sense organ. It functions like other organs in our body. The mind's function is to, among other things, is to discriminate so that we can have the understanding of, you know, this is a rose, this is a tree, right? We make distinctions with the mind. These, some of these distinctions are really helpful. Like, how do I drive a car? How do I write language, right? So these um, very important functions of the mind that help us uh, have street lights and help us have technology. So there's a way that we need obviously the mind that thinks, right? The mind that um, discriminates is what we call it in Buddhism, discriminating mind. Not, not judging mind, but just a basic discrimination. So I, I drive my car instead of trying to drive a tree, right? That's a pretty helpful distinction, <laughs> right? Yes. So the function of mind is to discriminate. And in Buddhism, we call that small mind, right? Or, or monkey mind. There's other names for it. So small mind, monkey mind is this mind that discriminates. However, we often are so identified, we often believe all these thoughts that arise. So believing that that's a car or that's my car or that's a red car, that's okay, right? That's the car and you're gonna get into the car. But it's the, what you refer to as the head trash. It's all the negative, so how do we deal with the suffering every day with so much with being overwhelmed and inundated with so much in the media, everything around us, you know, how do we stay in a place of an open heart, even when we're faced with so much, you know, in our faces and just full of that constantly, like how can Buddhism or their practices that we can use to help us through that daily? Well, one thing that we all can do is titrate to use a, a chemistry word, titrate our uh, exposure to all of the news. And the news often focuses on- You mean limits, right? Because I don't even know the, what titrate means. It's about limit uh, our exposure, right? Yeah, titrate basically just means you're uh, like you're dripping it in and not, not allowing yourself to be deluge. The daily doses of um, catastrophes and violence that are happening all the time so one way is some people who practice Buddhism would call it like uh, guarding the senses, right? So I don't know, I'm sure there's people who have, like myself, you see a movie, if you're not really into horror films and you see a horror film or an action film, there's a scene of violence or something that scares you. 
and how that plays in the mind, right? So we can guard the senses by not, um, yeah, by, by uh, deciding where we want to give our attention. So this isn't sticking our heads in the sand. It's like, okay, where can I focus my attention? All right, I don't want to not know what's going on. And having too much exposure to all of that affects our consciousness. And so part of being in the monastery is in a way we're guarding our senses in that there is no internet access, the cell phones don't work, and we're not watching television. So we're really decreasing the stimuli that our sensory organs are taking in, including the mind, right? Again, the mind is a sense organ. The function of the mind is to discriminate. It generates stories. Now, this is where the suffering- So, so hold on. So what you're saying, because the mind is a sense organ, it's going to constantly sense everything that it sees, hears, feels, touches at the body experience. It's constantly going to sense every single thing that the body senses. Therefore, yes. you can never really turn the mind off because it's always aware because it's a sensory organ, correct? Yes. So then we so have to train it in a way not to- pay attention to the suffering in front of us to get to get caught up in noise. One of my teachers would say, get caught up in the noise around us. Yes. So I, so yes, first want to say that's accurate is all of our perceptions through our sense organs go through the mind door, right? So the mind, as you said, makes sense of all that it hears, sees, tastes, and touches, and smells, right? So the mind is uh, taking all that in, and then it's making sense of it, right? That's a tree, that's a rose, that's Donna, this is Heather, right? So it's making sense, it's discriminating. Again, something that we need to do to survive. The mind, and this is where, this is, part of the Buddha's teaching and practice that was transformative for me is the mind, mental objects, right? So thoughts are mental objects and the mind perceives its mental objects, right? So the mind is a sensing organ that also perceives its own mental objects. So I see somebody in a red Corvette Right, little red Corvette comes up, right, Prince, for some yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I have an association with the red Corvette, like just like I said, I have, a, I have we, you and I grew up with Prince's song, Little Red Corvette. So I see the red Corvette and I think of Prince, I think of Don A, I think of Mount Vernon High School, right? So I have either positive or negative or neutral associations when I see what's going on, when I'm perceiving what's going on. And, and your perceptions are different from mine because nobody can live in each other's sensory apparatus known as this body mind. Yeah? So when I started to practice with the mind as a sensory organ, right? Thoughts arise, noticing the thoughts, watching as they persist in a dynamic way, and then they fall away. Just like the sound of a bell, which we hear a lot in the monastery. The sound of the bell arises, it persists, and this is all vibrations, right? This is not like it persists like a concrete wave. It's, 
it's a wave, it's, it's, it's vibrating, everything is vibrating. So the sound arises, our, our ears perceive it if we have uh, sensing organs of the ears that are functioning to hear it, and then it falls away. So same thing with thoughts. So for one phenomenon, what I'm gonna say is gonna probably sound foreign to many people. So sound, like any other uh, sensory object, arises, persists, and then fades away. Thoughts are also sensory objects. So if you were to equate, if you were to use the metaphor of the sound of a bell for arising thoughts, a thought arises, it persists, and it falls away. Now, how long it persists has a lot to do with us. Ah, Human beings often are geared toward uh, negative emotions, negative thoughts, stay with us longer. And, in, and I, my understanding, it's partly evolutionary because we needed to survive, right? Survive when there were um, lots of large apex predators that we didn't have the guns to kill, right? So as we were evolving, this keeps us safe. This sense of threat keeps us safe. We need to be safe. So safety is one of the primary primary uh, needs of human beings. And we're all sort of programmed differently uh, with regard to the kinds of thoughts that arise. When you start to practice with the mind, when we're sitting meditation, the practice is thoughts arise. We can't prevent thoughts from arising. So I want to disabuse people of that. Practicing meditation is not about stopping the thinking mind. It's actually about noticing what's arising. We're not in control of what arises. However, we are responsible for what arises, right? We're responsible to what arises. So the practice of meditation with regard to um, experiencing liberation is a thought arises. I can watch it arise in the, the mind's eye, if you will, watch it persist. And I could, if I wanted to, get in there and make it last forever, especially if it's a real juicy thought, like mm. about how I can't stand that person or a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse or my boss. Somebody gossip is gossip. a perfect example. Yep, gossip. Right. Like so, we just got to keep going or somebody pisses off, we got to keep going and right. going and going about it. So unlike say this, so, so we, after our thought arises, we can either extend that thought or we can just watch it fall away. You know, and the Buddha says, noticing mental states is very important. You can notice what kind of mental state you're in. What's the mood of the body mind? When a negative thought arises, a harm, and I, I would say negative thoughts are harmful thoughts. They're thoughts of, that cause either yourself harm or suffering or somebody else harm if you were to speak it or if you were to act upon that thought. Right. So we, as humans, we get so identified with our thinking that we actually start to believe these thoughts. And this has a lot to do with how we're conditioned. So you and I were speaking earlier about how fortunate it was that we grew up in a, in a, in a neighborhoods and high schools where there was people from different parts of the world. So we were socialized you and I were socialized to be around people who were different from ourselves. And we valued 
those differences, differences in language, differences in skin color, differences in food, differences, just cultural differences. We were exposed to that as a positive, at least that's how you and I were exposed to right, right. positive. We have then, so then, so there's these individual or familial conditioning that happens, but that all happens. And that of course affects our thinking, right? And then we have bigger uh, influences like societal norms and institutions. So we have um, gender roles, right? You have to be a woman, you have to be a man, you have to be a straight man, you have to be a straight woman because the normative is hetero, right? Heterosexual normative. Um, and then we have religion telling us certain things. We have the schools that we go to telling us certain things. So we have all of these other forces that condition us. So the experience of meditation, the practice of meditation in Buddhism is, first of all, acknowledging all of these conditions that are, that how we've been conditioned, realizing how we've been conditioned and where those conditions, um, and it's impossible not to be conditioned. <laughs> Let me just say that. It's like, how can we become aware of how we've been conditioned and notice how that conditioning has caused, causes us to suffer, causes us harm and causes other people harm when we enact that or we react and we right. act upon our conditioning. We think it's real. So there's some people in the world, you know, you're a, you're a black woman and I'm a white woman. Some people in the world would say I'm better than you because I happen to have white skin. Right. That's, a, that's just some arbitrary, unfortunately a very devastating, harmful and arbitrary, although on purpose, um, distinction. Right. right? That, that many people have bought into. And we already know scientifically it's not true. And we also know that many scientists were involved in making people believe it so they can feel right. better about right. being slaves. They can feel better about how they were mistreating human beings. And we've seen this obviously all around the world. Right. It, what happened in Rwanda, how we, Rwanda, the Holocaust. The list, go, the list goes on, the, the list, list goes on. on. Right. Right. So we all, so, so if we bring that back to the individual and, and, and start to pay attention to the head trash, as you say, for Heather, I get to see more and more because I'm sitting still, I'm stilling the body. I get to see and become more familiar with the Heather's personal head trash. How do you, how do you manage that head trash? So once you, I was reading something earlier, I wish I had it in front of me, um, that was, that really talked about this very thing about how we're conditioned and we have this head trash and this causes all this, we cause all this trauma to ourselves, but how do you begin to unpack that? Like asking somebody who's experienced a lot of pain to now sit in a meditation and mm -hmm. look at that is very painful. How yes. do you do that without, how do you manage that pain? Right? Well, let me just stay with the head trash for a minute. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So the transformative, one of the transformative teachings of the Buddha for me is that everything is impermanent. Everything is changing. And when you're sitting in meditation for hours and hours upon a day and you're out in nature, walking around, you're 
and then you're you're uh, feel more integrated in the environment, right? You're not sitting like the two of us are now in our air conditioned places or places where we can get heat outside of the elements, right? We're manipulating our environments because we're smart animals. However, when you're in this, when you're in a monastery and you're meditating all the time, you get to watch, you get to experience physically impermanence, right? You get to sit there and you get to feel how cool it is in the morning in the meditation hall, which is not heated very well. You get to feel how it heats up during the day because then you're back there a few hours later. Then you're back there in the afternoon when it's really warm, uh, if it's the summer or the spring. So your body, your skin, of course, is the largest sense organ that we have. And so you start to become more attuned to what's going on to your senses. Mm. Not only your uh, physical apparatus, but also your mental, your mental apparatus of the mind. So the experience of impermanence, people, you know, some people are afraid of change, but change is happening all the time. And often change is good. Change is helpful. You get out of a job you don't like. You leave a relationship you don't like. You, your children grow up and they go to college or get a really great job. And you're like, great, I have time to myself now. This is changing. So impermanence is one of the three marks of existence um, in the Buddhist teaching. So impermanence, you know that that thought that's arising, it's going to go away, right? And the less engaged you become with that thought the quicker it will dissipate, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so if I'm sitting there with some head trash, I could engage it like we talked about. And some, and some of these thoughts have a lot of hooks to them, a lot of um, what, what the Tibet, Tibetan Buddhists would call shenpa, S-H-E-N-P-A, uh, shenpa. It catches you, right? For many of us, if you're sitting there meditating and there's a thought about, oh, what's for dinner? It usually doesn't go down the path of, oh my God, I can't stand this, I can't stand that, I hate this person. Although when you're at the monastery, there's less and less things to get involved in. So sometimes people get very upset about food <laughs> because they're not in control of what they're eating. And they may in fact dislike the person who's in charge of setting the menu. So your mind could set, could go on and on about that. And you're, so it's not about not experiencing the thoughts. It's acknowledging the thoughts. Mm. If that thought mm. is causing suffering in the body, drop the thought. Even if it's not causing suffering, but usually the suffering aspect keeps us hooked in. So the practice is you drop the thought. As the founder of this Soto Zen lineage says, um, don't, in, don't invite the thoughts for tea. Leave your back door and your front door open. The thoughts come and go. Just don't sit down in the living room on the couch and have tea with them. Mm. So the are coming and going, just like the sound of the bell. We don't usually identify with the bell, right? The sound of the bell. Like, I want to grab that sound. It's my sound. Now, people, of course, do that with cars and material goods, and we think it's ours. Um, but when you're sitting there in the monastery, hour upon hour, staring at the wall, Yes, lots of stuff arises, lots of head trash can arise. And of course, uh, it doesn't work for everybody in some ways because especially now that we know more about trauma and how trauma gets lodged in the body, it's certainly um, 
not always helpful for people to be sitting, especially people who may feel a lot of depressive thoughts and ruminate, get stuck on the rumination of those depressive thoughts. Clearly, um, somatic-based therapy can be very helpful for people. So uh, I think that's for individuals to decide. I'm just saying that in a basic way, practicing meditation helps alleviate suffering because we start to disidentify, no longer identify with arising thoughts as who I am. So I, would think, so- I would think too that you would start to identify that even if you're faced with something in the moment, having experience and it's not so great, you start to identify and realize you are not that experience. It's just something that's happening, but you are not that and you are bigger than that. You're more loving than that. You're better than that. Or whatever it is, you start to realize this is not me and I do not have to take this with me to the next thing, right? I don't have to own this experience and take it into my physical body and experience the suffering. I could choose to be separate from that. Yeah, so yes. So in a way it's like there's small mind discriminating tree from car. There's small mind generating stories about the tree in the car or about this person or about what dinner is going to be. Um, So the less involved we become, and this is again, of course, mentally, right? It's like small mind talking to small mind. And if small mind is really crazed, which unfortunately it can be for many people, I call it briar patch. You know, you just try to, you're in the briar patch and you're trying to, you're in it and the more you move, the more scraped you get, the more you engage all of those thorny concepts, right? the less you feel alive, the more scratched you are. Right. So this is a process of how can I, how can I acknowledge the briar patch of, of thinking mind, not become involved in it, or if I do become involved in it, I get to notice the suffering that arises because I'm trying to get out of it. Right. And then the other, the other aspect that I want to mention is when I first started with practicing um, meditation and, and Buddhism, arising negative thoughts, I'll just focus on the negative ones because those are the ones that cause us to suffer or those are the ones that are suffering. So the rising negative thoughts, especially ones that have a deep history, you know, I'm not worthy enough, I'm never gonna uh, find a, a companion or a, um, somebody to care for me or um, I'm not as good as this other person or I'm better than everybody, right? Right. The the self-conceit, whether it's better or worse. We're very, those negative thoughts were enmeshed with physical sensations. Now, the more that I practice meditating, the arising negative thoughts were there. And again, the enmeshment into those sensations were there, physical sensations, right? The more I meditated and, and let go of, arising thoughts, let them pass like the sound of the bell through the mental sensory organ, right? The sound of the thought, just the the sound just floating through, allowing negative thoughts just to float through, not engaging them. The more that I was uh, able to stay with and experience um, uncomfortable, unpleasant emotion Mm -hmm. sensation Mm -hmm. in the body. 
Mm. So I got to feel the sensation of, uh, say, anger or uh, shame in my gut without all the stories in there about how I wasn't good enough and how it's because of this. And if I could only do that, if I could let go of the past, if I, it was just like, oh, the, uh, there's a sensation in the belly of clenching and then breathing into it, allowing it over and over again to unclench without believing any stories that arose about the clenching in my throat or the clenching in my gut. I'm just focusing on two areas of myself where there seems to be a lot of holding, even after seven years in a monastery. <laughs> right. And so those stories, the stories no longer were enmeshed with the sensations, which brought me a lot of relief because, because it also made those stories thinner it's sort of like, instead of shouting, like I'm in a small room and those thoughts were really shouting at me and I could never get away from them. It was like a stranger calling from a long distance. And I could barely hear what those thoughts were saying. And I was able to, my body was more enlivened and I was able to experience physical sensations without all of these stories. Does that, does that make sense? That makes total sense. So it just became, once they got separated, then the body, you could just see the experience or the feelings of the body without having to label it all. Because actually labeling it all and the story behind the label uh, magnifies the sensations we're feeling in the body, which magnifies the pain and the suffering. Yes. So I think labeling is actually could be helpful. It's more of an interpretation. Got it. Okay. Oh. My gut is clenched. It's because um, I was abandoned as a baby and I was neglected and I hate my father and I can't stand my mother. And as opposed to, oh, I feel like I can't find my breath in my gut. I'm just going to breathe into the gut and allow it to release. So the more that I was meditating, the less of that story was arising, whatever the stories were. And I was able just to sink further and further into the belly and allow it to express itself. And those stories were not arising. So it's not, it's not like, I mean, labeling can be helpful because then, you know, this is all about sensory awareness. You can say sadness, anger, shame without going down the bunny trails, the rabbit holes. Got it, got it. Of each of those stories. I feel shame because of, I'm Got angry it. because of, it's like, what's the process, the psycho, what's, what's the emotional experience, the physical experience of shame, of anger, of rage, of anxiety. It's okay. I mean, the stories usually are attached to it, but once the stories start to fall away, that briar patch really settles and you get to just sort of be with the sensation of, anger however it it, it uh, reveals itself to your to, to your body however it's lodged in your body so, so faced in a, so if someone's faced with a situation or ex having a negative experience in the moment with someone the practice of the meditation practice of recognizing thoughts will allow them to begin to recognize in that moment that they don't have to be that that mitigates their experience in a way 
that they won't experience so much pain. And so as we start to adopt these types of practices, it will actually help us in the long run. It may not help us today. It's not like we can meditate today for five minutes and we're going to catch that. Right. But if that is our goal, is seeing it as a goal in over a period of time, it'll become easier and easier. But it's something we have to have patience to discover. Yeah, and the, yes, and the practice is all about paying attention over and over and over again. What's going on in the moment in the body? Our society is really disembodied. And even more so, right, when we're speaking like we are on Zoom, we're basically just become talking heads. <laughs> right. Right? And, and, and speaking of that, there's an image that comes up for me is, you know, the newscasters, right? Broadcast journalists, which there's so many of them now. I mean, back when we were growing up, there was just those seven channels or so in New York City, and you would see the television, you know, you'd see the broadcasters. I think what comes up for me around being disembodied is also speaking of violence and separation. In our society, is very cut off from the body, and that is also, we're also very cut off from emotions. You know, it's like, you know, an announcer will go from one disaster to another disaster to another disaster. And maybe some of them are a little bit more attuned and outrage is kind of more acceptable. It's rare that you see anybody expressing any kind of sadness. Getting back to liberation, I think it, it, it has to start with us. You know, with us taking responsibility for our own yep. suffering, our own liberation. It's all yep. right here. We all have the um, ability to be free. And for me, practicing meditation, I'm an extreme case. I went to a monastery for seven years. Uh, but for me, that just, you know, we're all on a, we're all on different paths, but I think humanity uh, is on one path. Uh, and I think it could be, well, I think there's more, more than one path, but I feel like either we're going to evolve to uh, include all sentient beings, and uh, I include our Earth as a sentient being, or we're all gonna just we're gonna just destroy the planet and ourselves. Well, thank you so much. This is a lot. Like I've gotta have to sit and digest all of this, and I feel like there's so much more for us to talk about. Like this is just to me like the tip of an iceberg. Like. Mm -hmm. I hate even ending it here because I feel like there was just so much. We're just like getting into it, right? There's just so much, but this was really refreshing. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate your asking me. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's the end of another incredible conversation. Oh my God, I totally want more. I have so many more questions. I could have talked to Heather all day about liberation and freedom and how we can begin to quiet our minds, but I had to end this conversation somewhere. I am now convinced more than ever that getting handle on the ruminating thoughts in our head is necessary for a happy, healthy life. Talking to Heather also showed me that I need to be more patient with myself. There is something called the human condition, that when we judge it and condemn it, we create so much suffering. How can you be more accepting and loving of yourself and your own thoughts? Heather's agreed to come back for another episode so that we can dig in a little deeper. So I hope that you will tune in and catch it. So stay tuned. 
And if you have not subscribed to my podcast, please do so and make sure you sign up for notifications so that you know when I post a new episode. For now, thank you so, so much for listening. I'm your host, Dane O, and this is Move Through and With Heart. Bye for now.